isn't just free will because it's quite highly heritable. By ignoring genetics for a century, psychology went badly wrong. Dr. Robert Plowman, an American-British psychologist and geneticist, famous for his work on twin studies, author of Blueprint, and is a world-renowned scientist. We learn about behavioral genetic hot items. Real Alice in Wonderland stuff, there's just no science behind the Myers-Briggs. Testing for, uh, what do they call it, romance DNA or dating DNA. A little wicked in a way, it was parents matter but they don't make a difference. Four pages in my book, Blueprint, about got more attention than anything else. His research also has political implications of dystopias or environmentalistic. I mean, Stalinism, the Marxism, Mao, North Korea, these are environmental theories. They really think that society can mold everyone to be the same. With a scientist with decades of experience under his belt, Finding new and exciting avenues to talk about in an interview is really something hard to do. We achieved that, and you don't even have to take my word for it. Take it from Roberts. The aspect to this that I find interesting, it's great we're talking about this. Nothing we've talked about so far have I talked about in previous dozens of podcasts. Let's stay curious and get into this episode of Learning with Lowell. It's a very old psychological concept, like these Jungian archetypes. And I've always wondered, as I've been, I meet about like a thousand people a year, and I feel like Either like I'm getting boring, I'm like trying to like fit people in the boxes, but I do wonder about like are, are these real things and does genetics show us uh, archetypes of people? Like, is there any like uh, implications there? Well, I'm kind of against the idea of type of any sort, mm -hmm. but especially Jungian archetypes of which for which I don't think there is much evidence, even though they're still popular in English departments, but I don't think they've been done anything for science for <laughs> forever. So, um, the sort of genetics I'm talking about is complex genetics, not single gene genetics. And people are forever trying to create typologies, you know, in psychiatry, for example. Okay. And that uh, I, th I think what the genetics shows is that for complex traits and common disorders like schizophrenia, all of psychiatric disorders, learning disorders, there's a continuum, a quantitative continuum. There isn't anything like a dichotomy. So the problem here is people learn about genetics from Mendel, which is a single gene sort of approach. And so if you have the mutation for, say, Huntington's disease, you, you will die from it. You know, it, they're necessary and sufficient, just like the characteristics that Mendel studied in pea plants. You know, wrinkled seeds, for example. You only have the wrinkled seeds if you have two copies of that recessive allele for wrinkled seeds. So the thing is we learn about genetics from Mendel and single genes, which does lead towards typologies and dichotomies. But with common disorders, medical as well as psychiatric and psychological, there's no examples of that. You know, there are thousands of single gene rare disorders, but what we're talking about is genetic influence that involves many, many genes of very small effect. And that shifts it from qualitative to quantitative. And it also shifts it from determinism to probability. So we're only talking about probabilistic risk, you know, whereas if you have a single gene and it's necessary and sufficient, you know, if you get, if you have that dominant mutation for Huntington's disease, you will die from Huntington's. It doesn't matter what other genes you have, what environments you have or whatever. But um, so, so that's a real problem. That's why I kind of went, ugh, when you started off talking about type, typologies, because, you know, I have this long thing about why we shouldn't be thinking about even um, 
psychiatric classifications. I have a paper called There Are No Common Disorders, you know, just quantitative traits. And there's a lot that follows from that too. Um, if you don't have a disease, if, if, you, if you don't have a dichotomy or disorder to cure, you know, then, then what do you do? You know, it's not like you're cured yeah. or not. It's all quantitative. Uh, anyway, we can talk some more about that later, but the short answer to your question is, I don't think there are typologies of any sort, and certainly not Jungian archetypal sorts of typologies. Yeah, no, uh, I hear what you're saying. The I'm always, well, I hear more about like the Myers-Briggs, like modern type ones, and I'm always wondering to the, I know many people who swear by them, like they'll they'll have like hires do these type of personality tests and stuff like that. I know. It always felt like it's a, it's a waste of time to some extent. Yeah, yeah, it's weird about the Myers-Briggs. You know, I started out with studying personality, so I know quite a bit about it. There's no scientific basis for the Myers-Briggs uh, typologies. But somehow, people like that. They like to classify. They like categories, don't they? Are you in this category or that category? And I suppose that's what the Myers-Briggs does. But, you know, it's just real Alice in Wonderland stuff. There's just no science behind the Myers-Briggs. It's just big money and... And, you know, if you were head of a company and you wanted to hire people on the basis of personality types, you know, it's not your responsibility anymore. You've got this typology that you're using, you know. But if people only knew that it has no scientific basis, and there are good personality measures, but they're all quantitative. They're not typological. Are there ones that, because um, I'm always uh, looking into this type of stuff, are the ones that you think are a little bit more accurate in terms of like understanding people? quantitatively yeah well um there's the called the big five personality traits in psychology so there's several measures of the they call it the five factor theory of personality but um you know it's self-report isn't it and so there's mm -hmm. nothing that will give you any magic i mean if, if you filled out a personality questionnaire of any sort it's just what you say you know and even if you're being honest how well do you know yourself and so uh, there isn't a, a great deal of predictive accuracy in any of these personality questionnaires in terms of job performance, but they're probably just as good as interviews. You know, we often think we're insightful in terms of picking people in interviews, but that's been shown to be definitely not true. I mean, you know, we, we don't really get much of somebody out of that narrow slice of behavior, you know, behavior that we observe during an interview. Mm -hmm. So I actually think in my book, Blueprint, I talk about the possibility of using DNA as a predictor, because even if it's not great, it doesn't explain a lot of variants. It's definitely true. I mean, what you get out of it, there's no um, faking or, you know, presenting yourself um, in a positive way. So I think it can add some objectivity to even job interviews. And that's sort of the way I think we'll end up talking about the DNA revolution going is towards predicting um, things that we value in society, starting with the medical profession, which is happening now. The uh, A minute ago, you mentioned the like no diseases, essentially. And, you know, in America, I think we're like the SSRI capital of the world in terms of just like finding categories and, you know, like causing, pro uh, yeah. treating things that maybe a little bit too much, in my opinion. Um, how would... How would treatment change if we looked at it more from like a categorical, like I think, like maybe like a, like how the U.S. does things versus like your perspective? Like well, how would we help people? US, you know, it's a lot of in in um, say in psychiatry, DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual, is, is 
more of an American thing, whereas ICD-10, the International Classification Scheme, is um, more Europe and the rest of the world. But they're, they're not all that different. You know, they're all based on classification. And um, if, in terms of treatment, you know, medicine now is moving away from trying to cure disorders. Like the, the prototypic example is rather than waiting till someone has a heart attack, and then trying to fix it, isn't it a lot better to predict and prevent? So that's one of the major directions medicine's going is towards predictive medicine. And DNA is the best early warning system we have because you know, you begin life as a single cell and the three billion base pairs of DNA in that one cell is the same DNA in the trillions of cells in your body. So it doesn't change in terms of inherited DNA sequence, which means that you could predict from very early in life who's gonna get a heart attack. And if you can predict, you can begin to prevent, to intervene and prevent. And with heart we, you know, problems, cardiovascular problems, we know what to do. Part of it is very low level stuff, same message we all get, eat well, exercise, sleep. But you can go further than that, up the technology lab ladder all the way to hold body MRI sorts of scans that can detect fuzzy arteries. But again, to intervene then, not to wait to do a bypass mm -hmm. until you've had a heart attack, but to predict that and to prevent it. And, and I think it'll happen in medicine first. It's already happening where DNA is being used to make these predictions. You know, it, not, they don't predict all the variants by any means, but you know, they, they give you a good supplementary solid information to make these predictions on. And unlike other predictors like body weight, for example, you can predict very early in life. And what we know about intervention is the earlier you can intervene, the better. In fact, with a lot of our disorders, you know, despite the dramatic sorts of things we can do in medicine, um, it does seem to me from a public health point of view, prevention, prediction and prevention and intervention has to be the way to go. You know, um, you think about Alzheimer's, nobody's really talking about curing Alzheimer's. You, certainly not when, when you get, when you are completely demented, there's not, I can't imagine there's ever going to be anything that can put your brain back together again. But the idea of pre preventing, or at least alleviating, you know, thinking of it quantitatively, you know, just trying to alleviate the symptoms you know, it's said that if we all lived long enough, we'd all have Alzheimer's. And if you could just prolong that, you know, a few years even, it could make a big difference to quality of life. So I'm very keen on this prevention thing. And I think it'll happen first in medicine. It is happening in medicine. And then it will eventually happen for psychiatric and psychological disorders, which is more my specialty. I've long wanted, you know, because in the U.S. we do like a, you're supposed to do like a yearly checkup with your doctor. I've always wanted them to like, you know, do a DNA test. But the insurance is always like, no, we won't pay for that. You don't have a problem. It's like, well, how are we supposed to know? <laughs> we don't take a look and then make sure everything's yeah. good. Yeah, I don't get that. I mean, insurance companies have been wary because what if you took a DNA test and found out you were at high cardiovascular you know, risk for a cardiovascular event? say, massive heart attack early in life. So that is something you can predict. You know, um, the, um, a man in the top, what is it, 10% uh, of that genetic risk distribution have something like a 15-fold greater risk of having a heart attack. So if you knew that information, couldn't you insure yourself to the hilt? 
and then the company, the insurance company, would be left out. And in, in, in America, there's the, what is it, the Genie Act, or the, the, um, the act that prevents insurance companies from using that sort of DNA information against you. Because you could say, if they had that information, they would say, uh, sorry, we don't really want to insure you because of that high risk. So there are things to work out. But the bottom line for me is, I don't know how insurance-based system, health systems are going to work after the DNA revolution because of all these issues I'm describing. And it does, does seem to me that um, uh, a, a national healthcare service, which in a way you're getting to in America, you know, with these HMOs, they're like little health centers. And, you know, it's not like they pay for everything. I know my parents who, who died a couple of years ago at 97, it was like a full-time job dealing with their health insurance because of the complications of the donuts, you know, so much you get paid here and then you got a hole in the middle and, you know, it's, it was, it's a real nightmare. And the nice thing about a, a universal health system is that you distribute, distribute those risks. And, and also you make the hard decisions about what you can do. You know, we have this organization called NICE, the National Institute for Clinical Excellence, where they have to make these decisions. A new drug comes along, but it costs, you know, $100,000 a year to extend life for six months. And you got to ask about, well, but what is the quality of life that's being extended? You know, so it's really difficult decisions, but it is clear you can't do everything for everyone. And someone has to make those decisions. And I'd much prefer they're not just made on the basis of dollars, you know, which is really the way the insurance companies work, right? You know, that's why they have these massive buildings all over, you know, they're making huge amounts of money. And I'd rather these decisions be made on the basis of um, health policy. You know, and I know there's problems with the national health care, mostly because they, they do it so cheaply. I mean, you know, the cost per person are in the UK, say, are incredibly low compared to the U.S., where mm -hmm. it's like four or five full. I mean, it's amazing the difference. Yeah, we pay out the nose. Yeah, yeah. So I think um, my prediction is that insurance-based systems are going to have a hard time dealing with the DNA revolution. And in, in another aspect to this that I find interesting, it's great we're talking about this because these aren't questions I ever talked Nothing we've talked about so far have I talked about in previous dozens of podcasts. So this is really interesting to me. But I find it um, uh, interesting to, to think that insurance works when you go to the hospital. So insurance kicks in when you have your heart attack. And then the hospital gets paid a lot of money. You know, severe heart attack is something on the order of half a million dollars by the time everything's done. You know, by, you had the bypass surgery and all of that not to mention loss of quality of life. But you'd think uh, it would, the insurance companies would be very motivated to prevent problems from happening. But there's sort of no money in prevention. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So, uh, whereas in a, in a national health service, prevention is just a no-brainer. I mean, you know, if you, if you can avoid having people go to the hospital, that's fantastic. And no one making money is a good thing. I mean, if we prevent your heart attack and you just go along, you know, no problem, that's the best possible outcome. But it doesn't seem to work that way within an insurance-based system. Yeah, the, 
uh, I'm, I have three books behind me on the insurance in America, and it's like a very complex subject. But uh, but at one point in time, they had caps by how much they pay for your life. They would say like, uh, you know, we had like they'd cover you for up to two mil, and then you have to find something else. Uh, and then uh, the next insurance would be like, well, we already know you, you know, ran up this with another insurance agency, so now you're gonna pay like five times as much. Uh, I think in one of the um, medic one of the meta uh updates in the last like 10 years was they they outlawed that they made it so you can't do that anymore like insurance has to take care of you for the, the whole life or like for as long as you pay for your policy what have you they can't make deterministic decisions like that because there's so many there's so many moms that were basically doing the math saying that at 14 my, my kid will no longer be able to have insurance and they were like you know you know raging against it which appropriately they should because then their kid will basically die they can't cover anything um so it does seem like it's really good that the insurance companies didn't have these type of technologies to make these predictive de decisions uh, or else they probably would have fought a little harder for these types of like horrendous uh, policies. Which, so it, it it looks like it's slightly going in the better direction, like, you know, heinous to like slightly less heinous. But like for the money we put into it, um, it is pretty ridiculous. I think uh, it'd be nice to see. It's one of those, it's one of those areas that like generally piss, like it just pisses me off a lot because <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, you know, I have like a especially because uh, I have a genetic illness. And so I have to, I have to deal with everything you just talked about. And they're like every six months or so I have to take like a day off and spend like the whole day conference calling with like my doctor insurance and the, a pharmacy just to get things worked out. And I can't imagine yeah. how yeah. frustrating that is for, for people who are older and have less energy, but it's probably happening. Every yeah, day, and right? in, you know, in the UK with the national health service, a lot of people are frustrated with it because it's been so starved of funds in a way you know, the, the hospital bed occupancy rate is something like 110 mm percent. They actually have to get people out in the morning to get someone in in the afternoon. You know, it's just squeezed too tight. Um, so people are getting disenchanted and people who have money are going privately because they think, you know, you just get what you want when you want it. And the only questions you asked are about whether you want another cappuccino. And that is actually the way it is right now. I mean, if I have things I want done, like elective things, you know, like, uh, um, uh, well, I had my knee surgery. I had a knee replacement. I had that done on the NHS, and it was brilliant. It was really good. But it was canceled four times before it was actually done because of a shortage of beds. You know, they had everyone there, but they had to cancel, which is incredibly wasteful in itself. But now what have I had done? I've had a, a few other minor surgery things done and I did that privately and it is brilliant. You know, instead of being told when you will have your surgery, they ask what, what day, what time would be convenient for you? Would you like to go to this hospital by the river or would you rather go over to that hospital? And it really is the case. The only questions you are asked are, do you want another cappuccino or what would you like from the lunch menu? I'm, I'm not kidding. You know, it's like a plush hotel. But I think eventually it's that will get more like the HMOs, which they're more restrictive, at least from my parents' experience. You know, you, you don't just go and decide, I want that doctor to do my surgery in that hospital, and I don't care what it costs. So I'm with you on that. Um, and yep. I, just, uh, I just wish we could make the NHS work better. And I have a son in the service, and, you know, he's a – a liver transplant specialist, you know, which is pretty high, high level stuff. And yet he spends about half his time just trying to get a bed 
for these people who come out of a liver transplant, you know, which need intensive care, of course. And boy, it just can't be right, you know. He has to he has to clock favors from friends at other hospitals who have a bed available in intensive care. You know, that is something at least you wouldn't worry about in the U.S. You have plenty of hospital yeah. space. Mm -hmm. And uh, we also have PPOs. So there's HMOs, which are very restrictive, like you're talking about. We have PPOs, and I think there's like one other type of plan where you can be a little bit more selective. And they've uh, changed some laws where you can actually shop around a little bit, where uh, hospitals now have to like be very public about what the costs are. And so you can, there's like, there could be a hospital like 10 miles apart. And you can say, hey, I'm going to get a knee surgery. How much is this going to cost? You know, X, Y, and Z. And they, they can send you like, basically, hey, this is what it is. And you can compare them. And then in a lot of cases, the difference is significant, like 50% difference of going to one hospital over the next. So then you just call up your insurance like, hey, I'm got fine with either, right? And they're like, yeah, we don't care. It's all the same to them. So then you pick and then you have less of a you know charge on yourself. And then you can, and then we also have a, I don't know if the UK has this, but we also have like the, you can kind of review your doctors. You can see their scores and stuff. So you can see like, is it like, it's cheaper, but there was one hospital near me that had a terrible infant mortality rate for, uh, uh, no, not a, a a mother mortality rate for for a uh, uh, baby delivery like the the babies would survive but the moms just kept dying at a rate that was disgusting compared to like wow. it was like a third world country kind of kind of rates and there was like a story like like a doctor like grabbing the baby and trying to rip it out but anyways um so like people started noticing stuff like that and they stopped going there and like crack it's cracked it now but uh now you'd be able to see that and know like okay no matter what happens don't take me to the hospital take me to this one it's cheaper you know my baby <laughs> i my baby will not die so there's a little bit of yeah. I don't, it sounds like maybe you guys don't have stuff like that, which is kind of nice, but um, actually, there's quite a bit a of information like that's oh, okay. that sort because it's it is a national health service and that sort of data is made available. And I I looked at that very carefully, you know, to decide who should do my knee surgery because I was told by um, they call them consultants here, you know, when they're surgeons, and um, I I was told that the thing you want to do is get someone who does it as an assembly line. That's all they do. They do thousands of knee surgeries a year. And then you can look at their record, but if they're doing that many knee surgeries, you can bet they do it pretty well. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so there's some some um, like crossover in terms of how things work. The the it, I don't know how we'd fix it in America. There was like one point in time where we almost had a system like the UK, but I think the doctors actually went against it because they didn't want uh, insurance getting in the way. But I don't know. Hopefully, over time, it can get better. The, I was listening to this podcast as a little bit of a transition. Um, about a, a psychiatrist who he's like really big into the brain so he'll scan a person's brain before he sits down with him like what have you and um he talked about how he talked about how like whenever his uh, kids would date someone he'd want to get them in the in his lab so he can scan their brain and so uh i don't know if, if you're that way with uh genetic testing or anything like that where um like where you think it'd be useful to like test your you know your, your uh like for dating and stuff like that uh because like the, this guy was just talking about how he thinks it's the smartest thing. Like, oh, you guys are serious? Let me let me scan their brain. I'll tell you tell you what how they're like. You know. Well, there's a lot to say about that too. You know, these um, direct to consumer DNA testing companies. There's 50 or so that I know of in the world. The big ones like 23andMe or Ancestry.com. A lot of people get their DNA tested primarily for ancestry because you know it is awfully interesting how you find you you know who you think you are is not necessarily who you are, you know, in terms of where you came from in terms with the DNA. But uh, you might be surprised to hear because you, you were joking about that for dating, but um, it, it was one of the kind of growth areas here a few years ago 
uh, DNA testing for uh, what do they call it, romance DNA or dating DNA. Uh, a lot of those have been shut down now because they weren't, um, they, they ran afoul of, I don't know who it was, but um, there's a, a very good aspect to this that you had that wonderful interview recently with George Church and um, he, he didn't even talk about this because he does so many amazing things. But, you know, he offers a service to do whole genome sequencing to couples who are planning to have babies together. Or, you know, you know, as you were saying, as they're dating and they're thinking about marrying someone or having a kid, before they do that, if you do whole genome sequencing, you can pick up the single gene recessive disorders. And if you could do that with everybody, you could almost wipe out these single gene recessive disorders because all of us carry several of them. There's maybe 50 times more of us who have one copy and that makes you a carrier so that you know people know about say PKU or sickle cell anemia. One copy doesn't, you don't see anything. You need two copies, one from each parent before you will show the disorder. So if a couple get together, they have a they have maybe half dozen or a dozen of these very bad single gene recessive disorders. They're usually, they're very rare, but there's some sort of probability of one or 2% that you and your mate might actually have a matched set. And if you're both carriers, because we know you're not affected or you, you know, we'd see that. If you're both carriers, one quarter of your offspring will have the disease because, you know, the probability is you'd have 25% of your offspring who get a copy from each of you. So uh, I think that's an amazing example of basically DNA dating. And uh, it really, it, you know, it's not just promissory. Um, Ashkenazi Jews in New York, where, where they're subject, they have a much higher rate of Tay-Sachs disease, which is another single gene recessive disorder where kids die early. It's just horrible. I mean, you know, a lot of these um, mutations you never see because they're so bad, the embryo isn't viable. The stuff we see, as bad as it is, is just the sort of benign tip of the iceberg, really, because those at least made it to birth. But then, you know, they, in the case of Tay-Sachs, can have a horrible few first few years before they die, and there's nothing you can do about it. So the Ashkenazi Jews, which already had arranged marriages to some extent, you know, they they decided that they would add to that DNA testing for Tay-Sachs. And they have almost eliminated Tay-Sachs. Because if you were going to uh, marry somebody, I don't know, in these days you say mate with somebody or whatever, you don't, in, Ameri in England and Europe especially, people don't get married until after they've had a kid by and large hmm. to see if it works, you know. But um, it, if, uh, if um, uh, well, so the Ashkenazi Jews has man managed to wipe that out because if you and your potential mate uh, are at risk for this, you're both carriers for a single gene recessive disorder, you've got several options. I mean, one is you could say, many fish in the sea, I'll try again. Or you could say, no, we'll get together and maybe do in vitro fertilization so that you we can go into that, but you can you get several embryos. I don't know if your audience would know about that. And you could pick one, one quarter of those embryos will have the disease, but that means three quarters won't. And so instead of picking them just on the basis of morphology and that sort of thing, you could actually predict it on the basis of DNA. And it, 
it, it, it's dead certain because we're dealing with single genes. So that's a, an example of, um, you know, the, I don't know if your audience is probably too young to know the film Gattaca. Oh, yeah, no. I don't you know. It? I have a question on, on Gattaca later. And, okay, uh, let's do that later then, um, because it's a very Prussian film, mm -hmm. and uh, it's just what I object to is that it's uh, its view of a dysgenic sort of uh, dystopia sort of view of of it, and and uh, I think everything it predicted is coming to pass, but because of commercial interest, people are doing it themselves. You know, they're paying to have this done instead of a totalitarian government, you know, demanding that you do all these things. But let's come back to Gattaca, because I think it's, it's very um, instructive, because that film, 1969, I think, was before the human genome was sequenced. And yet it predicted just about everything that's happened. It's just amazing that, um, that, that the, I think the director wrote that film, and it wasn't really popular until his next film came out. Who is this? Andrew Nichols, am I thinking? Something, mm -hmm. something like that. But he did um, that film. Uh, oh, God, why am I blocking on this now? About, um, uh, I'm not even close to it. But it, uh, well, we'll come back to it later. But he had this film that became very popular a few years later. And then as a result of that popularity, there was a resurgence of interest in Gattaca. Well, we'll come back to that later, though, right, yeah. Lo? Yes. Yeah. Well, I meant the the newer Gattaca. I don't know if you saw this one. It was like uh, the early two thousands that they remade it. And the I've, I've only seen the remake. I haven't seen the original. The remake's really but, good. But the original was, you know, um, Ethan Hawke and uh, yeah, Uma Thurman. And, yeah. That, I think that was like the uh, the two thousands, wasn't it? Is there two? I, I swear there's two. Now, now I'm concerned. One second. Gattaca. Oh right. I've never heard of that. Um, you know, oh, the 1997. It, maybe, yeah. Oh, maybe, yeah. was it the director's cut, maybe? I think I vaguely remember that. You know how, like, the current movie by Ridley Scott uh, on, yeah. on Napoleon, he had, it's a, what, a two-hour film, and he has a three-hour director's cut. Mm. You know, because yeah. directors are always pissed off that they're cutting stuff that the director thought was important, you know? All right, we're talking so, about the same one. I got, I got, I got confused. The, uh, okay. the Gattaca with Ethan Hawke and stuff is we're on the same one. In terms of uh, IVF, the Jude, Jude Law about, is the other one there. So yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, they're fantastic. Amazing yeah, yeah. yeah. The, actually, I just pulled it up and there's like all these famous actors in it that uh, I didn't realize uh, on the first watch. But the IVF, I actually think that it, uh, generally should be like universally covered. Just imagine like what you're saying. Like imagine all the, the help it could do to people, uh, making sure that. You know, you won't have as many miscarriages, uh, which is pretty traumatic on women. I know many women who have had miscarriages, and it's it, it's uh, very traumatic. Um, and then when the baby comes out and it's fully healthy and everything's good, you don't have to worry about uh, these like single um, yeah. mutations or anything else. Uh, I mean, it's it's such a, a beautiful thing to, and but the problem is like it's not really covered. So in America, it's like I think it's like twenty grand per try. It's like twenty grand, so it's a lot. Um, it's more than it's out of the reach of most people. Um, so, but but so you know, a lot of people, better. a lot of people do it already, though. So mm -hmm. in that case, if you're going to do it, it would. I don't understand why you wouldn't want to screen out for single gene yeah. recessive disorders. Yeah, and you know the costs are going down for all of these things. So um, I, I can confidently predict this is going to be a bigger part of uh, prenatal care in the future. 
because it's sort of a no-brainer. I mean, you you just prevent a few of these births. You know, um, George Church, you know, you know how these estimates go, but the, the, the thought is if you could eliminate single gene recessive disorders, which often they don't always kill you early in life, you know, some of them are lifelong sorts of institutionalized situations. He, he estimates a trillion dollars a year, but you know how those estimates go. But still, it's, in every way, economically, but I mean, what about the cost of parents? I mean, having a child who dies early in life, I mean, man, how bad is that? And oh, and the bottom, the, 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 the final bit I wanted to get to on that is most people find out they're a carrier now because they have a kid who has the disease. Hmm. And then uh, a genetic counselor tells them, oops, you, you must be carriers. So then they find out they are carriers. Then the next time they do in vitro fertilization. But now they have had a kid with that disease. So if you could cut out that first step and you know move to the second one, it's gotta be a great thing to do. And you'd only do it if you and your mate had uh, a match set. You know, you were both carriers for a particular mutation. And that should only happen a few percent of the time. But, you know, another thing I want to get onto is we're all, uh, 27 million people have paid to have their DNA tested. And I, th I think uh, some countries, Estonia, Finland, and the UK has an 80 million pound project along this line, a pilot sort of pilot project, to get your whole genome sequenced. And you can carry it around on a little memory stick, you know? Mm -hmm. it, it's not that heavy, 2GB or something like that. So I, I think in the future, everybody will have that. So if you've got that and your mate has that, even if it's not Gattaca, where she actually, it, you remember that scene with Uma Thurman? She goes in and it's a place where women would take like a hair, the follicle of a hair has DNA. So she takes a hair from who she thinks is Ethan Hawke, you know, her, her love interest and has it tested. And so it comes back with this long report, which is glowing because it isn't Ethan Hawke's DNA. It's actually a hair that he implanted in his desk just for this purpose. But it was Jude Law's hair, who in the movie is this super athlete, superhuman being and everything who had a, a spinal injury. So he was paralyzed. And he was letting Ethan Hawke, for a great deal of money, use his DNA. So, um, but I thought it was funny to um, see that they had this dating service, which allowed you to, you know, you can get DNA very easily. Just that uh, bottle you're drinking from, you'll leave a cell from your lip, your, your, your cheek mm -hmm. inside. And all you need is one cell, because then you can, through polymerase chain reaction, you can amplify that and get a bucket load of DNA. And then you could do all of these DNA things from that's what, you know, that's what the FBI and CIA and all the other intelligence agencies are doing big time. That's another thing that they got right in Gattaca. It's revolutionized forensics. But yeah. you, remember, that was a big part of the movie. Someone was murdered yeah. in Gattaca, mm -hmm. which is the training center for astronauts. And they were looking for DNA cues. Uh, and so anyway, we. I just think it's a fascinating movie. But what, what I like to do is to say, look, they predict bad things. Uh, every, every aspect of it they think is going to be bad. I could turn each of those into good things. Like the one we talked about was prenatal screening. And we also talked about preconceptual screening, which is data, um, DNA dating, basically. 
you know, it, it can be bad, it sounds bad, but it actually can have a very positive angle on it. I mean, that's probably the most positive one. And I'm surprised George Church didn't even mention it during his long conversation with you, because I think it's totally brilliant. You know, oh, to be able to protect, get, to, to get rid of some of these recessive disorders. And only if you want to. I mean, we're, we're not talking about government saying before you can get married, you must do your DNA test with this other person. But why not just get started on a volunteer basis or angels like George Church saying he'll do it for nothing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think um, I think that I read it once that uh, like a lot of times people, people like friends and people end up together. They're genetically more similar than like other people. Yeah. Like for some reason, like we're attracted to that. And so I've always wondered, like, to what extent, you know, a DNA test like we were talking about could help better understand people. I know like uh, typologies were something you, you didn't like, but I, I always wonder, like, to the extent, like how how individual are we or versus how probabilistic are we? And is there like rules of thumb we could use to understand the world around us? Um, it sucks that the, some of the companies trying this uh, uh, failed out, but because I do wonder, um, could it help? Could it help people, you know, who feel very disconnected uh, make connections? Um, but it sounds like it would take a lot of work in terms of uh, getting people to get, you know, the testing and stuff. But uh, compared to in the U.S., because it's not, um, it's not cheap, uh, not yet to the point where like everyone can do it. Um, yeah. The, do you? Uh, do you think that uh, genetics, when it, so let's say like the kid's been born, we did the the screening, all this stuff, like they're they're coming out raisins or or whatever the phrase is, the uh, and um, will can genetics help us understand how best to raise the kids? Like I, I know in the the book you talk about how like kids yeah. like the environment doesn't have yeah, yeah. that big of a play, but there is so much of a play. So can we optim Can we use genetics to like these tool uh, tests and stuff to optimize how to raise? individually like the different kids yeah well you know I, I was mentioning that dna dating was a hot thing about you know a few years ago right now the hot thing in the dna testing world is marketing to parents of kids for exactly what you're talking about telling them your kid's good at musical ability or good at learning or likely to be adhd or whatever and um, and especially in Southeast Asia, for some reason, I know of 50 companies that do this and something like 40 of them are in Southeast Asia and a number of those in mainland China, only for Chinese, you know, they don't. But a lot of the others are Singapore and places where they do market outside of, of their country, you know, an international sort of market. And I, I think it's bad in a way because it preys on parents anxieties, but in a way, it can be useful and will be useful. Like you can predict height and weight quite well. And height, you know, if you wanted your kid to be a basketball star and he and, and you could predict he's highly unlikely to reach 5'5", five five, for example, you know. But the neat one is with weight. People are, people, I think everyone, we've done surveys and people know height is very highly heritable, you know, meaning differences between people in height are due to inherited DNA differences to about 90%. And, um, and there's a lot to say about that, a lot of caveats, but um, they're, not, they're much more surprised to find out that weight is very highly heritable too, about 70% heritable, meaning of the differences between people and weight, 70% of the differences are due to inherited DNA differences, despite the fact that, you know, people are on diets and Despite that, it is true. If, if you don't eat, you're going to lose weight. 
but that isn't what we're talking about. We're just saying people differ in weight. To what extent are inherited DNA differences responsible for that? Well, we can now predict about 20% of the variance. It's about 70% heritable, but we can predict with DNA alone, just in the last decade's work, about 20% of those differences. Now, it, you might say, well, just 20%, but you know, as medical risks go, this is explaining, this is very strongly predictive. It's more predictive of you being obese than say, uh, if you smoke two packs of cigarettes a day, it's, it's not as likely that you will die from lung cancer. You know, it's just people have a weird sense of prediction. And this is that probabilistic thing. If it was a single gene, I could say hardwired, deterministic, you will have this disease. But here we're talking about probability. And, and most risk is probabilistic. It's why, why there's no such thing as zero risk. You know, some people want to know something's, you know, completely safe. Well, everything's probabilistic, you know, and people need to get their head around that. There's a lot of randomness in life. You know, that's a hot topic we could get into, too. You know, from philosophy to physics now, uh, randomness is a hot topic, especially in economics for, well, anyway. So, um, I, uh, well, as you can see, I'm excited about this, and there's so many different ways we could go with this, but um, I, I've enjoyed talking with you so far about these topics. It's great. Yeah, the, so if you did a, a screening and you saw that your kid had, a, you know, these 20% chance of becoming obese, mm. the opportunity there is that yeah. education on, you know, exercise, you know, knowing that you're gonna have to put a little bit more care in there, like you can, you can do something to, to like head it off at the past. It's like yes. people, I think uh, the Thor guy, uh, Chris Hemsworth, just, uh, he found out that he had like, the double alleles for Alzheimer's and he's a fake guy. He's very, you know, healthy and stuff like that. So the, the probability is like on that stuff, it's like, I think it's like 1% higher. So obesity 20% is pretty significant. Um, but the opportunity there and knowing these things sounds like you can come in and you can help out the kid with a little bit more individualized yeah. care to take care of them. Yep. As I said with, um, uh, well, it, it, exactly right. I'm glad you brought me back to the point. I, I didn't make the, final point there, and that is exactly right, that if you knew you were at genetic risk, for, your child was at genetic risk for becoming obese, and it isn't becoming obese, it just means being heavy, you know, it isn't like obese, yes or no, for example, you could do the things we're all supposed to do, you know, eat well, watch what you eat, diet, exercise, you know, that sort of thing. But as a parent, you could do a bit more than that. I mean, you could watch as your kid hits this, it's called an adiposity rebound you know some kids right around seven eight nine you know in middle childhood they suddenly become very heavy and so you could just monitor it more carefully and not wait until someone's obese because with all of these disorders from alcoholism to obesity everything depression if you or heart attacks, you know, if you wait until it happens, it's very hard to put Humpty Dumpty back together again when they fall off the wall because there's so much collateral damage, you know? So um, I, I just think, again, prevention is a good thing. And it, it's not so silly parents wanting to find out about their child's genetic predictions. You know, in Southeast Asia, it's said, I don't know if this is true, but I've read it in several sources that it's the go-to shower gift now, a DNA test kit. Because hmm. so if you found out your kid was going to be obese, it doesn't mean there's nothing you can do about it. It means actually 
You can do something about it. You can pay more attention to it. Don't just let it happen because your kid doesn't wake up obese one day. You know, this is a slow process of putting on these pounds over your life. And actually, that's my highest genetic risk score for obesity. And mm. so I'm at the 94th percentile in terms of this distribution of genetic risk. And I, I, it was really quite liberating for me to realize that, um, that it's, it's a lifelong battle of the bulge. It isn't just free will because it's quite highly heritable. And people have trouble with that, you know, because they say, but, you know, if you didn't eat like a pig, you wouldn't be fat. Well, that's true, sort of, but it's easy for skinny people to say. You know, people like us have, you know, it's just, it, you find it easier to put on weight. Psychologists talk about two major processes, you know, um, uh, food satiety. When you feel full, normal people say, oh, God, I'd be sick if I ate anymore. And I'll say, yeah, you know, I'm going to a restaurant and say, no, I'm full. But then I start eating the rest of the food that's left on the table, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing is food responsiveness cues. You know, it's hard for me to walk past the bakery. I used to bake bread, but I can't do it anymore. Because the thought of warm bread, you know, with butter melting on it, I'd eat the whole loaf of bread, you know. So mm -hmm. uh, it is harder for me. And, um, and yet... It doesn't mean I throw up my hands and say, okay, well, I'm just a genetic fatty, nothing I can do about it. It actually motivates me to do more about it. You know, I have to think about it. You know, I like arrange my environment. I just don't have junk food around the house. Because, you know, with the best of will, when you're tired or not feeling well or something, you know, you just say, okay, there's that bag of chips that they're talking to me. You know, I'll just have one or two chips. You know, what's the problem? But of course, then the whole bag's gone, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's very useful to know about some of these things. Now, the problem with marketing to the parents is they pretend that they can tell you what to do as a parent if your kid has a genetic risk for, say, ADHD, or they tend to emphasize talents. You can develop your children's musical talents. But I don't something I don't like about that. Partly, it's um, on the talent side, if, you, if you've ever met these, like, musically talented kids you almost can't stop them from being music you know getting ahead in music you can't stop them from humming or hanging out with musical friends or now with spotify and all of that you know the sky's the limit they don't need fancy tutors or you know music teachers to help them be good they they can really do a lot by themselves so i think uh, i have a whole bugaboo against this parenting industry you know, because the uh, four pages in my book, Blueprint, about parenting got more attention than anything else, because I was saying parents, uh, the, the subtitle there is a little wicked in a way. It was parents matter, but they don't make a difference. Mm. And, and that they matter in the sense that, yeah, kids can't grow up by themselves, and they ought to have a nice environment to grow up in. But parents don't make a difference in the sense that their kid isn't a blob of clay that they mold to be what they want it to be. They need to understand they have much less control over their children's outcomes than they think. And in some ways that can be a saving grace because 1% of the population gets diagnosed as schizophrenic. And you don't know your kid is schizophrenic until they're in their late teens or early 20s. And then in the Freudian days or your friend Jung, that you'd be told that it was what you did in the first few years of life. It's, you know, caught mother blaming typically, but that's so wicked because it's totally wrong. There's no evidence for that. But imagine your kid 
gets diagnosed with schizophrenic and you're told it's what you did in the first few years of life. You can't go back and change the first three years of life. So I think genetics can never do as much harm as the environment has done in terms of mother blaming. Yeah, I wonder, um, I wonder about this all the time that, you know, a lot of movies are this idea that like parents are kind of in the way, you know, like a, 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 there's a, a new movie, what was it called? Elemental or something, where basically the woman didn't want to run her parents' shop, but her parents really wanted her to do that. And it created a lot of anxiety in her. But she had like this talent for something else that she really wanted to cultivate. And the movie basically rectifies when she the parents get out of the way and she can start doing the thing that she enjoys and she's happier and stuff like this. And so I wonder all the time um, how, how much of it is like uh, trying to stop molding the clay and then like listening to clay to see where it wants to go. Because I think exactly a lot of people right. come in with this top down like, I need to do this because I want you to be successful. It comes from a very good, you know, you want them to have whatever you want them to have and made for them. But I, was, I, I often wonder, like, how much of it is it just, you know, getting out of the way? And I don't know if you're a fan of Ben Franklin. I know you're in the UK now, so I don't know if you, you can be a, a, a fan of these guys anymore. But the, for the Revolutionary War days, but the, uh, when he was a kid, his dad took him to a yeah. bunch of different places and just watched him to see what he would like. And that seems like a lot of, a lot of ways what you should do with kids nowadays is just kind of, like, listen, but at the same time, like... Um, like some some parents are millennials and stuff are apparently listening too much and like letting the kids like uh like dictate things. I don't know if you're if you ever uh, back stateside. Uh, there's uh kids that are like running their parents around the 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 stores and stuff, and it's kind of fun to watch. As like a, a like I don't have kids, so I understand it, but I do but, wonder. Too, know, I, couldn't, I couldn't agree more with what you're saying, though. It's 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 the sort of message I was trying to get across in those four pages of my book that um, parents have less control than they think not just because of genetics, but the way the environment works isn't the way we thought it worked. But the point you're making is good. That's what I say bottom line is, parents should relax and enjoy watching their children become who they are and helping them become who they are, rather than trying to make them into something the parent wants them to be. Because it doesn't work. You don't have as much control as you think. And just as you said, you know, I think what's important is for parents to do things for their kids because they love them, they want life to be nice for them. And part of that then is finding out what they like to do, what they're good at, which means giving them, like you said, Ben Franklin's father, giving them opportunities to see what they like to do. And that's such a different way of thinking about parenting than the usual way where, you know, the parent sort of decides what's best for the kid. And that, you know, really doesn't work out very well. Plus, I can see a lot of parents you know, just being so anxious. They think, one false step and their kid's going to be screwed up, you know? And I just think there's a, a real need for parents to be able to relax and enjoy their children. And part of that's seeing who they are as an individual. And, and you know, it's so important to do things because you love them, not because you're trying to make them into something you want them to be. I often use the example of if you're trying to find a, a mate and you, you pick somebody and you say, well, she's not bad. You know, I can, I can shape her up into being someone I want. You know, and you, you reward her for doing, becoming who you want. You know, that's a, a recipe for disaster. But it's sort of what, it's the standard operating procedure for children, it seems. And, and one last thing before I go on a rant about the parenting stuff is, you know, there are supposedly, like if you go on Amazon and just look for parenting books, you find thousands of these books, but you know, you can't find one that mentions genetics. And for me, the most important thing parents need to know about parenting is genetics. 
And and what the, the neat uh, one neat aspect of this is a saying that parents are environmentalists until they have more than one child. So you and your children are 50% similar genetically. Your sib if you have more than one child, they're 50% similar genetically, but that means they're 50% different. So genetics predicts that they will be different. And the thing is, parents are environmentalists until they have more than one child, in the sense that with your first child, you know, like shyness is one of the more heritable aspects of infant temperament. And if your child's shy and you ask parents why, you get invariably get one or two answers because she was, I took her out too much when she was young, or I didn't take her out enough when she was young. But then if it's because it's highly genetic, if you have a second child, chances are that child won't be so shy. And then parents start saying, wait a minute, now they were different from the get go. And I didn't do that because, you know, if I took the one out a lot, I probably took the other one out a lot, you know? And so parents begin to realize when they have more than one child, how different children are from early in life, even though there's the 50% genetic similarity. And for IQ, for example, which is about 50% heritable, um, that means that um, there's, they, uh, siblings correlate, say, about 0.3 or so, you know, correlation from zero to one, one being a perfect relationship. So 0.3, they're 50% similar, 0.5 genetically. So, um, and it's about 50% heritable. So what that ends up meaning that is that if you take two people at random in the population, they differ by 17 IQ points. But if you take, you look at a bunch of families and you take two siblings in a family and you look across a lot of families, their average difference is 13 IQ points. That's the difference between kids who leave school at high school and those that finish university. It's a very big difference. And that's, Intelligence, you know, like general learning ability is, is a tough one for people that parents to take, you know, if, like I was always good at school. I liked it. You know, it was easy. It was fun. I read a lot. My sister was just the opposite. And, you know, so people assumed it's all environmental back then. And so what's wrong with my sister? Why her brother was doing so well, you know, what was her problem? And, you know, um, so I, I I think it's uh, tough for people, to, parents, to understand that, but it, it's really brought home with traits like intelligence or obesity or athletic ability. You know, siblings in a family do differ. And environmental theories have trouble explaining that because mostly, from Freud onwards, they're based on parenting. You know, schizophrenia. When I went to graduate school in the 70s, it was so environmentalistic, I never heard the word genetics until I got to graduate school. And if you looked up the textbooks at the time under schizophrenia, they confidently said it was caused by what your mother did to you in the first few years of life. It was just environmental. It's hard to believe, you know, just 50 years ago that that was the uh, complete belief. You know, genetics really didn't get a look in until the 70s, 80s, you know, and beyond. So um, being an optimist, I like to look back and think if, taking a long view on it, I think things have changed dramatically. I don't think you could find many people nowadays who would deny genetics is important, even for psychological traits. The one area I work in that is still kind of in the backwater is education. I mean, there still are people in education who think, you know, uh, your academic achievement is strictly a matter of teaching and 
quality of, you know, achievement itself means by dint of effort, it implies that it's just the effort you put into it. But actually, any achievement test correlates at least 0.5 with an IQ test. There's a strong genetic component. In, in fact, in the early school years, my research has shown something interesting, that achievement test scores at schools, even national sorts of exams, are more heritable in the first few years of life than intelligence test scores. And what's interesting is in, intelligence test scores become more and, more and more heritable throughout the lifespan, going from about 40% in childhood to 60% in adulthood to some people say 80% later in life. Whereas achievement is 60% heritable at the first year of school, at first grade, but it stays the same 70% heritable all the way through secondary school. So then that's kind of straight, it's at uh, say 60%. And then intelligence becomes more heritable so that at about age 12, early adolescence, um, it, it crosses over and intelligence becomes as heritable as achievement test scores. Uh, so I don't know how we got off on that one from parenting, but. Uh, uh, heritability is <laughs> yeah, but related to heritability, there's this idea of like generational trauma. I think if, if we were to go to uh, young young in, which I know you don't like them, but uh, I think it's like the ancestral memory or something. Like inner DNA is like our ancestors. Like that's what we're afraid of snakes or something. But um, I do wonder about uh, generational trauma. Like uh, I, I was, I'm, re I'm reading a book on uh, the Holocaust right now, and I have a friend who is the granddaughter of someone who survived it, and they talk about how like it still affects them. To this day and so i was wondering like to what extent things that happen to grandparents you know epigenetically or genetically are affecting people as it goes down is that like something that's um is, gener is generational trauma like a, a real thing from a genetic standpoint from an epigenetic standpoint mm. that isn't genetics you know genetics is meant to kind of provide the constancy of the species over the last you know thousand many generations right and, and so it doesn't reflect um, your grandparents' experiences. That's sort of Lamarckian, really, which um, uh, is anti-genetic. You, know, you know, Lamarck kind of screwed up Russian uh, agriculture for decades by insisting that genetics isn't important. And they missed out on the whole genetics revolution in agriculture, you know, which is really about hybrid vigor and all of that sort of thing. And... Um, so Lamarckian is the idea that giraffes have long necks because they stretch their necks to reach these leaves that other animals can't reach. So what you're saying is kind of Lamarckian, isn't it? That something in the experience of your grandparents could somehow change their DNA. What people are thinking about there is epigenetics. The first question I often get asked in a public audience is after giving a, a lecture, it's about, well, what about epigenetics? And I, Epigenetics is interesting. Everything in between genes, brain, and behavior is interesting. But what's important to know is that what we inherit is DNA sequence. And the epigenetics has to do with gene expression. And it involves these marks that silence genes with methylation. But that isn't inherited. That involves RNA. And RNA evolved to be responsive to the environment. DNA evolved to be uh, to reflect our evolutionarily expected environments. So they work together well, but expression has to do with 
immediate responses to the environment. And the idea that there's transgenerational methylation marks, I'm quite convinced there's nothing to it. Hmm. You know, there's a few examples people give in mice, but uh, Adrian Bird, who's the uh, UK sort of specialist in this area, has studied the processes, the, the ela two elaborate processes by which um, in a mother's egg, so it goes, processes wipe out all of these marks, these epigenetic marks, so that the embryo, uh, you know, created, the zygote created from the sperm and the egg then, is free of those epigenetic marks in the cytoplasm of the mother's egg. And, and so some things slip through, some changes might happen, but by and large, you know, why have these m massive processes to wipe out all those marks if they, there was some advantage to them being preserved. So I, th I think people, you know, the word epigenetics means above genetics. And some people like it because they like anything that isn't genetic. You know, they want to say, oh, see, it's really not so important, your inherited DNA, because, you know, it just changes and the, these Lamarckian ideas that, you know, it can change. And I know people bring up the Dutch famine, but that there's a, a number of critical responses to that too. So I think, you know, 99.9% .9 of what we're talking about with inheritance is inherited DNA sequence that comes from that first cell with which you began life. A hot topic now is somatic mutations. You know, the DNA does mutate. as It's highly accurate in its reproduction, but it makes a mistake every few many millions of times. But those mistakes add up. They're called somatic, that they're body mutations. And a lot of cancer involves those somatic mutations. So those aren't inherited, and you don't pass them on. The only mutations you pass on are mutations in your sperm or egg. So I think um, I basically say, when we say inherited, we mean uh, DNA sequence variation that you got from your parents and that you pass on to your offspring. Yeah, I know it's uh I think George Church and uh Dr. Duadna, the some of the there's a uh, I think Zhang, there's a third guy in there that is like predominant for CRISPR. They've talked about how they're very reticent about engineering the germline for this reason. They they want to like not mess with the DNA that's been passed down for millennia. Um I, just a a uh, slight tangent back because I, I had a note on this. Um all these companies are popping up with uh, basically trying to implement a lot of the research that you've done over the years, like your book, like a lot of the principles of like probabilistically looking at your DNA, like the, the romance, etc. Uh, how often are they like calling you up, trying to get you on the board or something, like trying to get you involved more in that way? Yeah, well, I'm not. I'm just the opposite of George Church in that I I never want to be involved mm -hmm. in the business side of things. You know, there's other people who can do that, and I like being um, uh, I like just doing the research. And it seems very privileged to do it in an academic environment where I'm sort of free to do what I want to do. I don't have to do things to make money. So I'm just kind of spoiled that way. Partly it was, I was, uh, I grew up a poor inner city Chicago kid and I was working one summer in a, a automotive plant on an assembly line. I wasn't on the assembly line. I was, you know, just um, bringing supplies and that sort of thing. And man, I decided I never wanted to be in business. I never wanted to have anything like a nine to five job where you're looking at the clock and you say, can it really just be five minutes later? You know, it seemed like it's about five hours. So I, I was always turned off to business. And um, 
uh, I don't know, I, I was never into making money. You know, you, if you're into make, making money, you probably don't want to go into academia because, you know, you don't get paid very well. But man, the reason it's so competitive is that it, the, the uh, benefits, you know, really outweigh those costs. You know, to have the freedom to do what you want to do and be in an intellectual environment, I think it's just amazing. You know, I feel very privileged to do that. So I don't want to waste my time making money. Mm -hmm. so I, I, hope that isn't, yeah. I hope that isn't insulting to you because no. I know that's no what worries. you do. I love learning. Like uh, if uh, but one of my when I was in college, I wanted to uh, do uh, very similar stuff to you uh, in terms of like researching um, the mind, like neuroscience and stuff. I wanted to go on to get my PhD, but unfortunately, I got sick and I couldn't do that. But uh, I don't. I, I'm similar in that I don't focus on the money. I just focus on problems I like to solve. So it's it's not in any way insulting to me. The, uh, Good. But it's, it does sound like even if the, these companies were to see this, if anything, they if they see this interview, they know not to email you <laughs> that you you want to yeah. keep in the research. <laughs> they can do their own thing. Uh, you don't want to be involved yeah. in it. The, so yeah. one. One person wrote in, uh, so I pinged uh, the audience. We got we got a bunch of people ranging from like uh, coffee and tea. Uh, someone West Ham. I didn't know this is a soccer team, but the first, the big one that I thought was really interesting. I didn't think of this as a parallel uh, to your work, but they said, and this is a uh, uh, quote. Uh, uh, basically, they they said and re respond to your work that you'd be absolutely despised by socialists and Marxists with that with this with their mindset. Because they claim that the their worldview is all inequality is caused by environmental oppression, and I thought that was kind of interesting. Like, would if that is true? Like, I don't know that much about socialist Marxism. Marxism. I haven't read uh the you know their their treaties and stuff like that. I only know by reading about like the Soviet Union and stuff. Um, do from a philosophical standpoint, is what you're finding counter to their like their their core tenets? I guess is that like this person's like observation. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. It's environmentalistic. You know, when people talk about uh, Brave New World or 1984, they're often thinking of these dystopias uh, in terms of a genetic point of view. But, you know, really, the worst sort of dystopias were environmentalistic. I mean, Stalinism, you know, Marxism, Mao, North Korea, these are environmental theories. They really think that society can mold everyone to be the same. And um, early in my career, in the early, late 1970s, I was invited to Moscow to be uh, on a, a month-long sort of uh, uh, symposium with people talking about uh, early development. And I was wondering, whoa, here I'm a geneticist. And I thought, this is so against them. But, but what I came to realize is in the first few years of life, this Marxist view said, yeah, okay, you're basically an animal. And what society does then is it puts you into these uh, communal sort of learning situations, take you away from your parents and make you into good citizens. citizens. So you're enculturated at that point. So it was okay to show genetics in the first few years of life, which is what I was studying then. But it certainly wasn't okay to show genetic influence later. And of course, that's what we do show. And, you know, it, it, it's a, what we study is what is. So that what makes a difference in your body weight, for example, genetics and environment, but it's not what could be. And what the Soviet experiment showed is that you really can mold people to a great extent, but you still don't get rid of those genetic differences. Try as you will. 
but you can, you know, really mold people in that um, imbued with that sense of uh, the socialist culture. But deep down, I think that it ran up against genetics because there's still, you know, supposedly every it's, you know, I think the, the essence of Marxism from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. That's a pretty good principle, really. I mean, but um, to enforce that and to to make the basis of it that there, there really is no difference between anybody. So let's have everybody get the same. But they didn't, you know. Um, it wasn't a matter of money as much as it was of privileges, being able to travel. You know, it was still pretty genetic. And we, we find that the heritability of intelligence is just as great in socialist countries. So they're not getting rid of the genetic differences. Mm. They're just kind of reinforcing them in different ways. Uh, then is capitalism probably like the the social construct that best matches what our genetics are telling us, like allow individuals to kind of like merit, merit, meritocratically uh, find their expression? Well, I don't, I don't think you, I mean, you know, it's like they say about democracy, you know, capitalism's terrible, except it's better than mm -hmm. any other, but certainly better than these top down sort of uh, approaches. Like, I don't think a socialist Marxist socialist sort of position would have to be, so heavy-handed and top-down and centralized. And, you know, we've seen the problems with capitalism, like in 2008, for example, you know, if it's un unconstrained. But um, uh, meritocracy is a, a difficult topic. It's, you know, a lot of this depends on your values. And I guess I should say at some point, there's no necessary policy implications here because policy depends on your values. But from a, a genetic point of view, um, you'd think meritocracy is a good thing, but, but actually merit implies that you deserve something, and ocracy implies to be led by, you know, democracy is to be led by the people, supposedly. But, uh, you know, what merit is there in the chance set of genes that you got? You don't deserve any credit for that. And there's a book by my colleague, uh, Paige Harden, who H-A-R-D-E-N called the, um, what is it called? The uh, genetic lottery. And, you know, it is, it is a lottery. I mean, you know, if you have bright parents, you're likely to be brighter yourself, but still the particular genes you get, the reason for sex is that it's mixing up genes and you're a unique combination of genes. And so you don't deserve anything as a result of that. You could say you already got your credit, you know, because you, you probably got a better education, you're probably doing better in life as a result of that. So it doesn't warrant special merit, you could say. And so, but then the other side of it is, uh, you must recognize that some people are a lot better in things than others. And who do you want flying your airplane? You know, do you want to just say, okay, passengers, who, who wants to, um, fly this airplane, you know? Mm -hmm. You don't wanna fly on an airplane like that. You want a guy who's very well trained. Same thing with your surgeon. So you do recognize ability and you want, you want people to be selected on the basis of their, their skills. Um, but it's just sort of the word meritocracy. And, and you know, that, that word was actually coined 
by um, Joseph Young in a book called The Something, uh, The Tyranny of Meritocracy. Uh, but it, he, he proposed it, but he, it was actually, he was against the idea and the book ends. It's, it's supposedly, uh, it, uh, it, it's this, it's this um, sociologist who is sort of supposedly writing this, autobiogra this autobiographical piece about how um, meritocracy sounds like a good idea, but then when it was employed, it created huge divisions in society, you know, which some people worry about now as well. And in the end, the sociologist is actually killed by the mob, you know, where he thought he was representing the people. So it, um, it was actually proposed in a negative way. But it, it's viewed now, especially in America, as almost like apple pie. How could you be against meritocracy? I mean, don't, but do you see what I'm saying? Yes, yeah. no, I see what you're saying. There's, there's no necessary reason why people should be rewarded especially well when they've already won the genetic lottery, you know? And then the conversely, you know, should you be uh, discriminated against because you have genetic problems? You know, I would certainly think not. But um, capitalism then isn't directly aligned with that meritocracy, you know? And so anyway, there's a lot of issues to talk about here, but um, yeah. maybe I'll leave that there. Uh, I'd, I'd recommend to people they read this Paige Harden's book called The Genetic Lottery. Yeah, it was uh, it wasn't something I, re I originally thought of because I had my outline and you know I, I picked my audience after that because I, I try not to let them influence me too much because I have to be excited for what we're talking about and I was just like oh I've never thought about the fact that like socialist Marxists and capitalists like might have a th you know some thoughts on your your work and stuff but at the same time there is uh you know like you're saying there there's some interesting uh things to be thought of in reference to it so here's a, a fun question then we're definitely going to join into Gattaca uh, after this but the uh, and I will give this person a citation since uh, they didn't use their real name, but it's Bolivian Dancer. I know that's not their real name. Um, do you do you support West Ham? Just a, a fun uh, question before we get into uh, some Gattaca fun. No, I've, we've got uh, four kids and they all support different football teams, mm. you know, soccer. Um, and I'm actually, I, I've actually never liked organized sports like that. I've never, mm. I was at Penn State in Colorado in Texas, and I never went to a football game, for example. Somehow, I, I don't like that mass um, thing. I know that's what turns people on and away to it, but uh, I just don't like mobs, you know? I can yeah. sort of see them, we see that now on Twitter, you know, with mobs forming. And so I never really liked that. I played a lot of sports, but always individual sports, but that's just my personal preference. So I don't really support any football mm. team and I was just in Colorado recently where they haven't done so well, but recently, you know, they've been very hot in football, but you know what they did is they just bought some other team and they, you know, they bought a coach whose son is a quarterback and his other son is the star, you know, and they got rid of all the Colorado players. I mean, that's, that's what I don't like about uh, English football It's huge money and they just buy these players. And what was the last one? $80 million they wow. paid for player, you know, so, um, somehow that doesn't, it's certainly not the Olympic idea of sports, is it? You know, where it's mm -hmm. just a matter of the biggest, the biggest um, paychecks. So yeah. and then, anyway, uh, I don't support any team. Then the Sorry bonus, to spoil that. I mean, it was a fun question. And no worries. I gave it a dour no, answer. <laughs> no, I, I prefer authentic answer. So I think the person will like it too. Though they will probably talk about the greatness of West Ham. They've uh, encouraged me to watch a game. But uh, then the, the bonus question for them is coffee or tea? Um, 
I drink both, you know, um, mm -hmm. I drink more coffee than tea, though, I must say, and especially now with these Nespresso machines, you know, it's, it, it, we can really get addicted fast. So I drink a huge amount of coffee. And then later in the day, I drink tea. And, to, and then I move towards um, herbal teas even later, you know, somehow mm -hmm. I don't like the harshness of coffee later in the day. Yeah. All right. So then uh, Gattaca time. The So the, the high level question is, um, uh, when will polygenic core, uh, scores, you know, be functionally complete? Uh, when will the movie of Gattaca be the, the present versus like, a you know, future? That's the interesting thing about sci-fi for the last like 50 years. It's like a lot of the future is very present. Like we're like living the future. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And as I was saying earlier, Gattaca was amazing in that it predicted everything that would happen, even though it was done, it was in 1969 before the human genome sequence, which was, you know, 2003, basically. So it predicted four major societal changes. One is DNA identification. In the film, everywhere you go, you have to put, uh, get a DNA sample and you know, to, to verify who you are. And there's some people who opt out of that system and they're especially, they're like down and outers, you know, the, the government doesn't take much control because anything you want to do, like Ethan Hawke uh, couldn't go to school because he had been, uh, supposedly has a genetic defect from early in life. Um, so now that sounds bad, right? You know, you get identified everywhere you go. I don't know if it's much worse than facial recognition technology, which, you know, you can just, you don't need to get a DNA sample, right? You know, you just need to have your face and you see it. Mm. But what, there, there's an example now, that sounds bad, but it's actually revolutionized forensics completely, you know, with this barcode. It was the first thing that was done with the DNA revolution in 1987 is to develop, it's a type of DNA marker that involves repeats. They're called restriction fragment link polymorphisms. And it gives you like a barcode. It looks just like a barcode, but it's a unique identification of each individual. And that is what's made it possible, say, for example, to release 25 prisoners from death row in America because they had DNA samples, but up until the DNA revolution, you know, they didn't know what DNA was. They couldn't do anything. But the DNA proved that this sperm from this guy who apparently raped and killed this woman is not this guy's sperm, you know, 100%. So, you know, there's that. And then identifying um, dead bodies, you know, people have been missing for a long time. It's really been terrific. And you see it now with um, people... One of, the, one of the things you get out of 23andMe is it tells you about your relatives. And these databases are getting so huge that, again, it changed forensics in that even if, you know, the Golden State killer ended up being a cop who was involved in the investigations of these series of murders over decades, and uh, he was found because he was careful enough not to put his DNA on any of these databases, but some of his relatives did. And you could say, okay, now this guy is not the, not the person we're looking for, but they're very similar. They're like a 50% relative, like a sibling. And then here's another one that's a cousin. And then you can triangulate in on it and say, who are we missing? And you can get DNA from them. And that's how they found that the, the, the Golden State cop who was the, killer over these decades. So there's a lot of that going on. So it's revolutionized forensics. The second phase is the um, uh, 
um, prenatal screening, which we've already talked about. And that sounded bad because Ethan Hawke was born, they, they call it a faith birth, which meant you didn't do in vitro fertilization. It was in the backseat of a car. And so he was kind of doomed from birth because he wasn't selected uh, in in vitro fertilization. And they even imply a, a, a more sophisticated service in which they're testing sperm and egg. Because if you just test the embryos, you just get a dozen or so. But what if you could test sperm and egg from a mother and a father? So that sounds bad. And Ethan Hawke, you know, found out at, um, well, uh, so the, so that's in vitro fertilization, and that leads to designer babies. People worry about that. But as we said, there's a lot of positive stuff that could come from it, most notably George Church's attempt to get rid of single-gene recessive disorders. The third thing is um, uh, prenatal, I mean, uh, screening at birth, and that's where Ethan Hawke ran afoul um, because they found out he was had uh, cardiovascular risk to die very early. And so the point of the movie, the subtitle of the movie Gattaca is there is no gene for the human spirit because he wants to go into Gattaca, which is this astronaut training center, but there's no way he couldn't even get educated because of his genetic profile. But he used, as I said, he used Jude Law's DNA and he managed to get into Gattaca. The last scene of the movie is him jetting off to um, one of Saturn's moons. And so, you know, it's like he won, you know, with great effort and despite all the odds against him. But actually, if you think about that, how cool is that for his colleagues in the cockpit with him if he's at great risk for having a cardiovascular disease, a heart attack? You know, what if he popped his clogs on the way to the Saturn? That, that wouldn't be too cool in itself. And you could also say, if he knew about that genetic risk for heart attack, there's so many things you could do in life. Why would you pick something that is so physically, you know, um, exhausting and difficult? Why not pick things that are more in line with what you're good at and what you like to do? You know, true, yeah, you can overcome the odds and stuff. Like I could be skinny despite my genetic uh, propensity, but why not go with the genetic flow, you know, rather than swimming upstream, I would say. But um, but uh, it, it, the, um, the danger, you know, that seemed like a bad, they present in Gattaca this birth screening of DNA is such a bad thing. But really, you know, if you could pick genetic diseases and then prevent them and predict, predict and prevent them, as we talked about before, that's got to be a wonderful thing to do. So there's, again, another way in which the movie makes it look bad, whereas I would say it's played out to be good. And then the other, the fourth thing we also mentioned is pre-conceptual DNA testing, and that's DNA dating, basically. And we said, you know, here's, here's, that sounds pretty bad in some ways, but if you look on dating websites, maybe it would be nice to have some honest information, you know, about, instead of about your good sense of humor and all of that, you know, you could say, well, here's my DNA, and, you know, it's, uh, I look like a pretty good prospect, for example. So I think all of these things are positive, but the, the biggest picture there about Gattaca is that it's a dystopia. You know, everything's bad about this new world of the DNA revolution. Whereas, and it's often bad, like 1984 and Brave New World, because it's a totalitarian government imposing this on people. But really, the subtle message of Gattaca 
is it's not. It's led by people. People buy into this. And that, I think, is the most amazing prescient aspect of Gattaca because everything we're doing in the DNA revolution is consumer-led. 27 million people pay about $150 to do their DNA testing. So they're doing it because they want to get this information. And so I think that's kind of interesting. And, and like with facial recognition, for example, too, which I think is more dangerous in terms of loss of privacy and that sort of thing. We're doing it ourselves. You know, we're always ticking these I don't care boxes when we sign up for social media stuff, for example. So I think it's interesting how um, we're sort of encouraging these things to happen. I think because we feel that it, the, the, the good out, outweighs the bad by and large, I suppose. Yeah, the, I, I, like in our conversation, it almost feels like we're very near to Gattaca, to the positive levels of it. Like we're like on the cusp of having most of that technology, not to the, the, like the, the DNA, and, I mean the sperm and the egg level, but like we're, it seems like maybe in like the next 10 years, we'd be pretty, pretty close to a lot of the positive aspects of it. Yeah, I think it's a lot closer than that. And mm. it, it's, and it's going to be consumer-led by people doing their DNA testing. And there are countries, though, that are, are doing this as well. If you go into a hospital now in Estonia or Finland and they take blood, they say, do you want us to do the DNA testing for you? And now it's moved away from these SNP chips, which only get at a few hundred thousand DNA differences. And it's all now going to move towards whole genome sequencing, where you sequence all three billion base pairs of DNA and that's all she wrote. That's that's all you inherit. So anything um, genetic, you can predict from that. And as I say, that fits on a memory stick. So you know, it, it's that's going to happen soon. Well, it's happening already in some countries, and um, I think um, people will demand it when you come to see that if you knew about this genetic risk, there are things you can do about it. Yeah. So. So I would think that uh, when will it be functioning complete? I mean, five to ten years, I think. Like it's not, no, I mean, well, right now. I mean, it's yeah. a question of what do you do? It you can do it for obesity. Alcoholism isn't very strong. But, you know, if you knew you were genetic risk for alcoholism, it might just make you a little more careful about your use of that very dangerous drug, alcohol. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a lot of positives that can come from this. And um uh, it's just that right now it's hard to get good polygenic scores, but that will happen. And as I say, it'll happen in the medical, it's happening in the medical area first, but that will spill over to the other areas of science too. So there's a, there's a Brian Johnson, I don't know if you're familiar with this guy, his name's Brian Johnson, and he also has something called the blueprint. Uh, so, so it's kind of fun that this is going to somehow be applicable here, but the blueprint, his blueprint is like a pro, uh, a protocol to for longevity basically he's spending two million dollars a year to make himself younger like he wants to be like an 18 year old uh he's ah, about 50 60. Yes, i have heard of this guy yeah 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 so it's like one thing he said is that uh we're always living in the past like uh medical technology and stuff is like always like 20 years from where it is and so one thing that he does is he imagines what 100 years from now people will look looking back will say about mm -hmm. us to help him decide on what he wants to do and so it, it sounds like so i have like a two-part question here like First of all, like, what do you think your work will be remembered as when people look, you know, hundred years in the in the past? And then the second part is like, what do you think about these people that uh, are longevity optimizers? But I think like the first part I think is really interesting, given our history uh, fascination yeah. so far. 
Well, let me just start with that second one, though, because um, I can knock that off quickly. I think what the, in addition to preventive medicine, uh, the way me medicine is moving is towards precision medicine, where you don't just assign the same drug to everybody. You try and find drugs that work especially well for certain people. And I think that's what will happen in that longevity era, too. It's not any, there's no blueprint for everybody. Everybody has their own blueprint, largely because they differ genetically, especially in terms of pharmacological sorts of things. So I think that the idea is you need to personalize that sort of plan. And just like we need to personalize medicine as well. On the first part about people looking back, I've been in the field for 50 years, so I sort of know how people look back on it. And it seems to me an amazing thing. I think some of the most important discoveries in psychology have come from genetics. And that's just because it's like shooting fish in a barrel, because by ignoring genetics for a century, psychology went badly wrong. You know, just assuming that the environment is all important. Environmentalism, the idea that you are what you learn, genetics doesn't even get mentioned, you know, it, no one even thought about genetics. People know that things run in families, schizophrenia runs in families, no problem. It's because of an environment. It's because mothers, fathers pass that on environmentally to their children. But we now know what they pass on is genetics and that the environment's important, but it's not the nurture in nature and nurture. It's not systematic effects of family environment. Whatever it is, it's making two kids in the same family as different as kids in other families. So that's the other way in which parents don't have control. Not only do they not have control over the genetics, they don't have much control over the environment either in the sense of making a difference in their kids. So I think these there have been some of the biggest discoveries in psychology from genetics, and they're already getting recognized. But the next wave, of course, will be the DNA revolution. And... Um, I think Blueprint got criticized because it, I, I say in the book, I'm a cheerleader for it. I think there's a lot of good that can come from it. Yeah, we have to be careful about people misusing it. But um, there's plenty of people worried about that, the, the doom mongers, for example. But, you know, I don't want to belittle it. Yeah, you, you know, data privacy, all there's a lot of issues there. But I'm just excited to have something that has so much good potential. And I want to maximize that good potential. So that's, I think, what the next uh, wave will be, uh, I hope to be involved in, but you know, it, it's, it's all of the life sciences. You know, this isn't just psychology or psychiatry anymore. All of the life sciences are revolutionized by the DNA revolution. Sweet. Uh, then I want to thank you for coming on the show, Robert. And everyone, um, if you thought what we talked about today was fascinating. Check out the book. It'll be in the show notes. You can basically find it everywhere, I think. And um, uh, thanks, Robert, for coming on the show today. Great talking to you, Lowell.